we hold the Buddha to be this idealized, perfect being. And then we believe that to have an awakening to, quote unquote, be enlightened, we have to be that perfect imagined being. And I really think it's counterproductive. So the quote brings me back to this sense that it's not about becoming something perfect. It's working with who we are and becoming more ourselves. So our minds do wander. And if our desire and practice is to never wander, we're going to always be disappointed. But if we know up front our practice is about returning, then we're less judgmental. We're not beating ourselves up so much for what we're not, but we're encouraging ourselves to be what we are. Zen master Bonsong, Jeff Kitsis, began practicing Zen in 1975 and became a student of Zen master Sung San in 1979. He received Inca, or permission to teach, in 1992 and was given Dharma transmission by Zen master Sung San in 2001. Zen master Bonsong is also a licensed psychotherapist in private practice, integrating Zen, Buddhism, and Western psychotherapy. He has served as the guiding teacher of Empty Gate Zen Center in Berkeley, California since 1992. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We are launching a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. And listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try the group for a month for only $7 by using the promo code SBB when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. So Jeff, I think we first met just about 20 years ago, and I sat a retreat with you and one thing that you said in this retreat has stuck with me all this time, and and I'm not even sure I totally remember it correctly, but I think you told a story about being in some sort of, I don't know, intentional living place. In my mind, it was sort of a hippie community. It was. And there was like a latrine or something like that. And in the latrine or the, some bathroom, there was a sign that said, it doesn't matter how many times your mind wanders away. It's how many times you come back. And is am I remembering that correctly? You're remembering it 100% correct. Ooh, 20 years. And it's <laughs> it, it, it even was a hippie commune. Oh, was it really? Yeah. But that has, that, you know, I, rem I think you did that in a circle talk at the end. And more than anything else, I really remember that because it was such a gift that idea of like, yeah, don't worry about how many times you're wandered away. Just come back. Just keep coming back. And I don't know if that still resonates with you or... Uh, absolutely. Even more so. You know, it, as, you're as you're reflecting that back to me, I, 
it brings up the fact that sometimes I think our models in Buddhism get confusing. We hold the Buddha to be this idealized, perfect being. And then we believe that to have an awakening to, quote unquote, be enlightened, we have to be that perfect imagined being. And I really think it's counterproductive. So the quote brings me back to this sense that it's not about becoming something perfect. It's working with who we are and becoming more ourselves. So our minds do wander. And if our desire and practice is to never wander, we're going to always be disappointed. But if we know up front our practice is about returning, then we're less judgmental. We're not beating ourselves up so much for what we're not but we're encouraging ourselves to be what we are. Hmm. You know, one of the things I was thinking about just in terms of seeing you again, talking to you again, I mean, I've seen you a couple of times since then at sort of gatherings and whatnot, but I also was kind of wondering what, you know, the Zen master Bon song today uh, is like in comparison to the, the guy I sat with 20 years ago. Because I, I haven't sat with you in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really remember that retreat so well and enjoying it so well. But I'm just wondering how your practice, you were, you, you'd you received transmission at that point, And yet you're, you probably have deepened in your practice over these 20 years. And I'm wondering what that deepening has been like for you. It's a difficult question because it's a little bit like, I suppose, the lobster in the boiling water. You don't know that. <laughs> You don't recognize the changes as they're occurring slowly. Probably the biggest change has been the depth of acceptance of things as they are. And, you know, even then I talked about bringing your mind back, the importance of not getting lost in what you're not doing, but just come back, just come back, just come back. But I think over those 20 years, it's really deepened even more the sense of the world is broken. It's not a matter of perfection. It's about it's a matter of healing and returning to what is possible rather than trying to reform and reshape ourselves as something new and different. So when you say something like the world is broken, we can look out the window and regardless of which political position you hold and just say it's not the way that I want it to be, right? But how do you sort of reconcile that with this is just how things are, or, you know, it's perfect just as things are. Maybe you, you wouldn't actually say that. but Yeah, I don't think I'd say it that way, but you're reminding me, you know, before, when I was a college student, before I really knew anything about Zen, um, I was reading the Carlos Castaneda books and, and really um, my spirituality was opening in ways that were not just Zen. This came up with a student just the other day, so I'm remembering it freshly. But one of the teachings that I got well before I came to Zen was a phrase that goes something like, live each moment as if it's the most important moment you'll ever live, while at the same time recognizing that it doesn't matter at all. So there's kind of the balance of the the enormity of the moment, along with the fact that this is just a drop in time in a vast universe, and our lives are quite small and not 
so critical. Mm. While at the same time, what we're doing now is the most critical, important thing to be done. So as I'm working with the broken world, I'm at one hand trying to heal what's right in front of me, but also remembering that my efforts are a drop in the bucket and that there's less of an expectation that I'm going to fix everything and more of an expectation of just entering in the moment fully and responding with love, compassion, and wisdom. So you asked about a political situation. We live in very frustrating times. And I do my small bit in what I can to help, but I also have to work with my own frustrations, my own anger, my own disappointment. And that's also the brokenness of the world, not only what's happening out there, but the emotional, psycho-spiritual work of dealing with things that are enormous in some sense, and not so much completely, obviously, in my control. It's balancing both the relative truth of the moment and the absolute truth of the vastness and not knowing. Yeah, there's like an intimacy that I feel with life. That is, you know, I walk through the world with this body. I can feel pain and not just physical pain, but emotional pain. And and it's and there's so much anxiety, just, not just in the United States, like in the world right now, it feels. And I, I think part of it has to do with this, you know, some on some deep level where we know the environment's changing, like things are just changing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's anxiety, which has all of these different, you know, out of the shadow come actions right and how do you talk to your students who are you know feeling so anxious about their little corner of the world but also really when they look out and they just see the whole world like how, how do you as a as a as a teacher sort of guide them through that i want to start with something that you just said about out of these shadows come action When I was doing my master's thesis for Zen and psychotherapy, that was the title of my master's thesis, I found a quote, and it was from D.T. Suzuki in the late 1950s at a conference with Eric Fromm and one other psychoanalyst. And from a psychological perspective, he he said something like, enlightenment is making the unconscious conscious. Hmm. So so when you say actions come out of the shadows, so much of what our practice is about is illuminating the world so the shadow world is, is smaller. We're not getting rid of the shadow so much, but as we make things more conscious, as we bring up, as we have awareness of things that are below the conscious level, they become more integrated in us and we actually can act more clearly so that there actually can be less actions coming out of the shadows and that our actions can be clearer, more loving, compassionate, and more directed towards healing the world rather than our unconscious acting out. So to me, a lot of Zen practice is about illuminating the shadows to be able to see under the waterline, I'm mixing metaphors here, but 
to see what's below the waterline of the iceberg, not just what's above. And as we increase our awareness of those processes that go on inside of us, we're actually more clear and straightforward in our everyday life. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about anxiety, the first question is, what is anxiety? And I don't mean that from an intellectual point of view, but how is it that you experience it? What is the body sensation? Can you hold those body sensations? Can you work with it rather than act out from it? So since Zen practice is essentially one giant investigation, anything that arises for us becomes the doorway to that investigation. So, you know, kind of a personal example, in September of 2016, I was in Thailand and we were in this lovely place and I got stuck on my phone following election news. <laughs> and it was and it was at a moment I'm giving away some of my political affiliations here, but it was at a moment in September where it was the first time that Trump was getting closer yeah. to Hillary Clinton. And I just got very, very anxious about it. It was very disturbing to me. And I really every day for the first part of the morning, as I would check in with the news, I had to work with that anxiety. Mm -hmm. So. Now let's jump to November 8th, mm -hmm. 2016, where Trump finally won. And I recognized that after the fact, that whole feeling was quite different. And even though it happened, my anxiety level was different. And I began to see that anxiety was an anticipatory experience. You're anxious about something to come. So why I'm telling you this is um, it's, it's a way of seeing how the, the investigation of Zen practice comes back to what actually happens in our life. So if I'm dealing with anxiety, then my practice is to be curious about that anxiety and investigate it in my body, my heart, and my mind. And as I do that, I learn about it. It becomes more clear. And as it becomes more clear... I'm better able to work with it in the everyday situations that it arises in. So anxiety becomes the gate of practice. It's not something to get rid of. It's something to enter into. And it goes back to what I said at the beginning. I think a lot of us have this view that our practice is about getting rid of things that make us feel uncomfortable. But I honestly think that's a big mistake because it's often that discomfort that encourages the practice. So if we just get rid of the discomfort, we're going to actually get rid of that fire for practice. So we have to use the discomfort rather than try to practice to get rid of the discomfort. Yeah, I was thinking about that actually this morning as I was walking across the street to go into the, into the Dharma hall, cause I received an email that I didn't like, like a lot. I didn't like it a lot. <laughs> there was a, lot, mm -hmm. a great amount of dislike appearing. And um, I was like, whew, well, this is something to work with as I go in there. Uh, not as uh, figuring out a solution for it, but 
uh, wow, let's just go and see what it is that I am so tuned up about this and where it mm-hmm. is. And it actually uh, gave me a little bit of um, comfort to have that reflection space on it mm-hmm. because then it was like, okay, this is just something that we can explore and it doesn't have to be the absolute truth as I walk in really upset at this person. <laughs> right. You know, when I'm upset at somebody, it usually means it's something about me. What I've discovered is that sometimes I'm, I'm upset of, about a behavior and sometimes I'm not. So it may be less about the behavior and more about what it touched off in me. So Entirely. you again, you you had a Dharma gate to walk through. Yep. Oh, this experience happened. What is it? You know, usually our instinct is to practice to get rid of it. So if I if I do a really good job at staying with my breath or following my mantra, I can calm down. And of course, I think honestly, that's what we all want at that moment is to be able to calm down. But why calm down? Do we calm down just to feel better or do we calm down to be able to enter in more fully and open up to it and see what just happened? Where are my sticky places? What am I holding on to? What ego defense got hit? What fear got aroused? You know, often we'll look at what did they do wrong? Oh, but yeah, turning it right. Do you understand? Well, I walked in and I was so I was like. He didn't do this. He didn't do this. He didn't do this. But when I walked out, I was like, oh, this is what powerlessness feels like. Yeah. I was feeling, I was having this huge reaction of like, there, I cannot control this situation. And it's happening to me that there's nothing I, you know, there are some consequences. This That's right. person just has more power. And right. I was turning it into, I'm, he's wrong. But really it was like, oh my God, this is what powerlessness feels like. For you very subjectively and that's perfect that is there's so much value in that practice Mm -hmm. because you you took a difficult situation and you found out about yourself right you know zen master sung san's two purposes of zen understand your true self and help this world Mm. so okay this situation just happened what was it understanding your karma means really looking into cause, action, and result. You know, everybody thinks karma means cause and effect. But I remember Zen Master Sung San explaining this so clearly, and I can hear it in his language. But he would hold up his hand. He says, I have a match. That's the cause. Then I take the matchbook and I strike the match. That's the action. Now I have fire. That's the result. If you don't have the action, there's no result. So then the result becomes the next cause. If I take the fire to light a a candle, I get light. If I take that match and I light this book that's sitting next to me, I might burn the house down. So that moment of action is the critical point of karma. What do I do with the cause? That determines the result. And that requires that deep inquiry into what am I? So that we understand our karma better 
and then we're better able to help the world. And as we, the Bodhisattva vow is to help this world. If we orient our life that way, then we're already letting go of our attachments. Again, in Zen Master Sung San's words, helping the world means for me, suffering appears. For all beings, no suffering. That would be his line. So if I'm doing it genuinely for others, my ego is less sticky. But if it's really for me, that's when my defenses are going to rise. And, and each moment of, of life activity gives us a window into this question, if we're watching. So our practice means watch everything. Nothing escapes. We should be aware of everything. Of course, we can't be, but our practice is always to do the impossible. So we're always pushing ourselves a little bit beyond our limits. What am I? What is this? How can I help? And each moment, bringing that that energy genuinely forward and meet the moment completely. And you were practicing Zen for a few years before you met Zen Master Sung San. What was it that sort of pushed you to become his student at that time? Why, mm. why not stay where you were with whomever you were studying? Yeah. Yeah. I met Zen Master Sung San at probably, I mean, I was young. I was, let's see, I met him in 79. So uh, I was about 26 years old, right? Yeah. And I was at, I was in a very, very low point um, in my life in terms of sadness about a relationship and a lot of things were not, it was just a point. And I was living actually at a small Zen community. Uh, it was, uh, it was a rural community run by some people who had been students in the San Francisco Zen Center tradition. And, um, I was just miserable. And some people from Empty Gate Zen Center used to come up to uh, do solo retreats in a hermitage that we had on the property. And somebody left a flyer for a seven-day retreat with, with Zen Master Sung Song. And I was so miserable that day, I didn't know what else to do. So I hopped in my truck, I drove four hours down to Berkeley, California, and I, I joined the retreat. And Zen Master Sung San didn't come till about the third or the fourth day of the retreat. Um, and there was something about his energy. He was so alive. He was so, I mean, really, in, in some ways for me, it felt like he was on fire with life. And he was so funny. He was one of the funniest people I've ever met. And being around him, just going to lunch was a big deal. And the humor and the words that I use for it is things would get a little bit surrealistic being with him. He would kind of throw me into great doubt, but in a very enjoyable way. And uh, that's what I was mostly attracted to. I mean, I, his, his languaging of the Dharma was, was resonant for me. So it worked. But it was really his his presence, his his example of what it could be like to fully be alive. 
that would, was what really attracted me. And it's still, I think, the essence. It's the way I view, it's the lens I view practice through. It's like nobody, we don't have to be like him. We have to be like ourselves. To fully, to fully be alive, to burn yourself up in every endeavor, um, to completely, it's, there's a psychological term of congruence. Inside and outside are completely congruent. And you're giving it all away in that moment. And it doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself and do self-care and all the rest. But there's, it comes from that practice energy and this that power of presence in the moment. And to me, that's the essence of, of our practice, is being able to fully be ourselves in this very moment bringing out the best of ourselves and the best of everything and everyone around us. So really, it all should be essentially win-win. Everybody benefits from that full aliveness. Sort of maybe riffing off that a little bit, in some of your videos, you have so many videos on your YouTube channel, which is actually, it's a really lively video, like channel, I think it's Mm -hmm. fantastic. in one of the videos I was watching, you were talking about the the process of observation that happens when you're doing the practice. You said in this process of observation, there's also this process of of listening, and and that the observation leads us into the the possibility of of wisdom and compassion. And I'm wondering how that happens. Like, what would you say to to your students as how this observation, you know, as we sort of study ourselves, as we Try to be alive. How how that happens? I would point you right back to your sitting practice this morning. <laughs> That's why I hate talking to Zen masters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's the theory about something, and then there's the actual experience. So I will always send somebody back to the cushion or back to whatever moment they are in their life and do it. And once you do it, then you experience it. You know, sometimes I laugh, we give meditation instruction often. And I honestly believe that once we finish the instruction, everybody just finds their own way. I don't really even believe that anybody follows the instructions. (laughs) They try. Yeah, right. But But as they're doing it, they're working it. And so each one of us has to discover our own practice. You know, sometimes a critique I would have of the Buddhist world is that teachers are made too important. Hmm. That it's actually the student who's the important person. You're the important person. It's your practice. The teacher is there to help you. The teacher is, your, is a guide that can offer you advice when you need it or can help you see when you are getting off track. But it's your practice. You can't do it for the teacher. You have to do it for yourself. So it's the the quintessential tasting it so you know it rather than thinking about it. You know, we often use this initial koan where we ask, when does sugar become sweet? I can talk all day long about the sweetness of sugar, But until you know it yourself, it's all an intellectual exercise. 
So I'll always, I, I do the practice of listening. So I listen to what the student is offering. And generally speaking, the student has the answer already. My job is to reflect it back. I once heard uh, some of the, you and some of the listeners might know about Dan Savage. He's an advice columnist uh, around sexual issues. And I once heard him interview. And he said, when I get a letter, if I read the letter carefully, the answer for that person is already in the letter. I don't have to come up with the answer. The answer is they're telling me what their answer is. I just have to give it back to them. And, I, and that is the model I take. It's not that I have to know. All I have to do is listen and pay attention. And you or the situation will reveal itself. And then the answer is pretty clear. So we're, we're receivers. We're perceivers. And if we can be clear with our perception, then the answer will reveal itself. We don't have to figure it out. So you also work as a, as a psychotherapist uh, and you have this practice that integrates Zen and, and Buddhism. And in another one of your videos, you talked about how uh, Buddhism had been sort of impacted as it moved from culture to culture to culture. And, you know, here it arrives to America or it arrives to the West. And you had this line that Buddhism had really been impacted by, by psychology and the sort of the understanding of the self uh, through this, that lens. But then you, did, <laughs> then you didn't tell me what that meant. And, uh, and here you are, you're a practicing psychotherapist. And so what, what do you mean? Like, I sort of understand that we are in sort of a, a culture that's very sort of analytical in that way. But how has that shaped Buddhism? I think what I was referring to is that as Buddhism has moved in around the world, it takes some of the aspects of the culture it finds itself in. And the Western North American and certainly California um culture at this point has it is deeply impacted by psychology you know again zen master sung san saying understand your true self if you take that from a psychological point of view you have to understand family of origin issues because we're born into a situation not of our own making and we have to very quickly find a way to survive. All of us have imperfect parents. All of us have needs that have to be met. And from a very early age, we watch the situation and we figure out how to act in order to get our needs met. That conditioning is very powerful. In the West, we understand that conditioning through the psychological lens. So as we then practice, we, we're impacted by that lens, and we can also use that lens to help our practice. Not get lost in psychological interpretation, but to actually be able to become aware of our conditioning 
and how that conditioning impacts us. And as I said, from the Western point of view, the, psych the world of psychology has made it a very big difference in our culture. So it's here and it's part of the lens that we view practice through. We chant the four great vows. They're very important. Almost all Zen communities all around the world chanted. The, in the Soto tradition, as I've heard it, the third great vow is something to the effect of Dharma gates are endless. We vow to enter them all. And to me, that line is, is a quintessential line about practice. Each moment is a Dharma gate. Each moment that appears for us, if we enter that Dharma gate, our practice becomes alive. Each moment our practice finds life. It's not an intellectual practice. It's a lived, gritty, experiential practice. So to me, practice is all about orienting ourselves to completely enter the moment, show up. There's no hiding. It's completely engaged, completely invest, and do it. Respond to the situation with love, with compassion, with the bodhisattva ideal, in a way that brings change to the world. Change comes from me, it doesn't come from above. As I live a more alive, loving, compassionate, and life with wisdom, I benefit, the community around me benefits, it ripples out. If we're going to have change in this world, if we're looking for peace, it's not going to come to us from somewhere else. We have to do it. And our practice is moment-to-moment -moment experiential doing of that path. We sit in the Dharma room. It's a little bit like the gym. We build our muscle. We, we get our chops together. And we make it alive in our everyday life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zen Master Bonsong encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the Empty Gate Zen Center website, which is emptygatezen.com. There's also a very active YouTube channel with hundreds of videos of Jeff's teaching. I will include a link to that in the show notes, or you could just visit YouTube and search for Empty Gate Zen Center. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quanam Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of our new Zen study group for only $7 by entering the promo code SBB. The study group offers a close reading of the sutras and scriptures that are most important to the Zen tradition. To find out more, visit quanamzenonline.org slash studygroup. And don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.